I had managed to persuade Parliament to have a massive event, an Ask Her to Stand event, when we invited 300 women from all over the country. We asked MPs to invite women from their constituencies to come to Westminster that day to celebrate. And the whole of the Westminster Hall, this old hall, was full of women. And I led the chant saying, you know, equal seats, equal say. And that really felt momentous. The reaction was incredible. Women just started coming to our website and actually signing up to stand. Welcome to the Power Done Differently podcast. I'm Cassandra Ray, And if, like me, you've grown a little disappointed and disillusioned with the people in power, you're in the right place. In this podcast, you'll be inspired by powerful, passionate women who are leading with positive purpose and using their power to elevate others. Today is a special episode because it is the first of a special, really exciting subseries we are doing in partnership with 5050 Parliament, a cross-party campaign taking action to get more women elected to Parliament. My guest today is my newest hero, founder and director of 5050 Parliament, Francis Scott. A passionate advocate for better gender balance in Parliament, through 5050, Francis is working to widen access to the corridors of power and make those corridors more representative of the women's lives they represent. For her tireless work in campaigning, Francis was named one of the Evening Standard's Progress 1000 Most Influential Political Change Makers in 2018. She was also included on the Women in Westminster, the 100 list for the past two years, which celebrates women who are changing the conversation, challenging the approach to policymaking, and providing a female perspective on the important political issues of the day. Most recently, she was nominated for a 2021 National Diversity Award in the Positive Role Model category. It will surprise no one to learn that the issue of getting more women in the corridors of power is one that is very close to my heart. And just like the many women Francis is now inspiring to take a path in their life and their career that they may have never planned on, Francis didn't plan on this path either. I'd read Barack Obama's autobiography where he mentions activism, and I kind of thought, well, what is that? But I have to say there was lots of stuff that really concerned me. Mm-hmm. And I really felt that women's experiences um, were not really reflected in policy making. About as far away from politics as you can get, Frances started her career in the tourism industry. She didn't know it then, but that first role started to lay the groundwork for her as an activist supporting women. When I left university, I studied hotel management at university, and uh, I applied to work for the Intercontinental Hotel Group. The first job that they offered me was actually to supervise people in the coffee shop. But I noticed that the men were being offered jobs in the kitchens to supervise the cleaners, and the guys were being offered a higher pay. Oh, really? What, what a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> for a supervisory position, you know, first step onto the management hierarchy. Well, this was a London job and I needed the money. So I said to the director of human resources, "Um, actually, I'd like that job. I'd like to supervise the kitchen stewards. And she said to me, but we've never had a woman do that job. It's an all-male department. And I said, well, I'm sure I can do that job. You know, I've cleaned kitchens. (laughs) (laughs) And so she took it to the general manager who was called Graham Jeffries. And he was enlightened enough to say, well, hey, why not? 
So I sort of started working in this all male department in my white coat, but they were incredibly supportive and polite. And I was prepared to do anything that I asked them to do. That's the key. Mm. And in fact, I found myself appointing women to particular roles. Frances went on to serve in various management roles across intercontinental hotels before moving into consulting. Time and time again, she found herself up against that old refrain, women can't or don't do the job. They said to me, but we've never had a woman doing this particular job. You will need to fly to countries in Europe and uh, hire cars and travel <laughs> by yourself. Do you think you will be able to do that? And I, I said, yes. I mean, I was used to traveling internationally from a very young age. Later, I applied for work in the Far East, and it was the same question. I applied to be an operations analyst based in Hong Kong for Hyatt International, and they'd never had a woman doing this job, reporting to the senior vice president, liaising with general managers throughout the region. In fact, Frances was the first woman to be employed by Hyatt Asia Pacific. Basically, I was a troubleshooter going in, giving them advice about how to sort out their operations. And they said, well, we've never had a woman doing this job. But, you know, and I say, well, no problem. <laughs> anyway, so there we are. So actually, if I can stop you, it's funny because you started this by saying, I didn't even know what activism was, but it sounds to me like you were an early activist or certainly at least an early advocate for yourself and for women in, in positions of leadership. Oh, most definitely. You yeah. know, I mean, the idea that a woman had never done something never intimidated me. I mean, um, that meant nothing. I mean, of course, women can do stuff. And anyway, after this sort of international career, reporting to boards, very often mainly men and sometimes having to give them the bad news about how the project that they wanted to invest in wasn't going to make high enough cash flow and big enough returns. I came back from the Far East, got married and um, started a family. And at that point, I decided I really didn't want to keep traveling because I was very happy to start uh, having kids and I wanted to invest time in raising children. And I changed career direction completely. I became an antenatal teacher, which was a role that I did for about 25 years, helping women and their partners, generally men, uh, prepare for birth and parenting. Frances helped over a thousand couples prepare for parenthood and raised over 175,000 pounds for the National Childbirth Trust. During this time, she also sat on the Maternity Service Liaison Committee at the St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington, using her background in management consulting to aid the NHS Trust. With her experience of working in women's health care day after day, it became apparent to her that Westminster was out of touch with average women's lives and the work that they do. I just feel that parenting is an important role that has historically been played by women. It's an unpaid job, but just because it's unpaid doesn't make it unimportant. And the work and the contribution that women make to society is just as important as the contribution and the work that men bring to society. And our experience counts every bit as much as men's. You know, they used to say it's a man's world. It ain't a man's world. It's a men and women's world. So women need to be participating just as much in some of these big questions, all the big questions, the economy, welfare, spending on a nationwide scale, our experience, we should be present at the table where these big decisions are being made. The tipping point of Frances's journey towards becoming a full-time activist came 14 years ago. It kind of started when 
one of my kids, Joanna, my, a daughter, came bounding out of school one day and she was so excited. She said, Mum, Mum, I've been elected to school council. And I said, well, that's fantastic. Um, are you representing the class? And she said, well, no, of course not. There's always one boy and one girl uh, from each class on school council because our experiences are different. You know, the boys don't understand the dilemmas of whether girls should wear skirts or trousers to school. And we don't understand why the boys' toilets get so dirty, you know? <laughs> At 40, I still don't understand that. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of thought, you know, I was walking home as I did, you know, schlepping back with the bags and all and kind of thinking, yeah, why don't women have equal seats at the table? Your policy making might be different. Mm -hmm. And anyway, I didn't really have much time at that point. I was running a family. I was working as an antenatal teacher and I had an awful lot going on, a lot of stuff that meant a lot to me. So it kind of went on the back burner, but I kept talking to people about it. And then finally, if, about three or four years later, my daughter said, oh, mum, stop talking about it. Do something. And a young man who was coming back to my antenatal postnatal class with his beautiful daughter asked me how I was. And I said, my head is pounding with politics. I just think, you know, that we need gender equality of representation. And I'd heard other people, by the way, at that point say so too, including Tony Benn and one or two other men, in fact, uh, Professor Politics, David Runciman had been talking it from Cambridge University and Vernon Bogdanor from Oxford. All these men had been talking about it and deliberating about why 51% of the population were not properly represented in terms of seats in Parliament. So, you know, hearing these academic people who'd come to politics and statesmen gave me the confidence to start talking about it a bit more. Hmm. And so I said to this guy, Stuart, uh, my head is pounding with politics. And he said, oh, gender equality of representation. That's an interesting concept. I said, oh, are you interested in politics? He said, yes, I did PPE at Oxford, but I never thought about that. And I thought, my God, this is one of the main centres where we educate our future politicians. Yeah. And they don't even talk about gender equality of representation. I mean, you know, the Magna Carta did nothing for women. <laughs> this, the, and, and here we're still having to fight a yeah. hundred years on from winning the vote. You know, over 5,000 MPs have been elected, just over 500 or so have been women. This is crazy. Don't tell me that the system isn't skewed. Yeah. You know, the sexism is in the statistics. Yeah. That's yeah. a quote from Meryl Streep, but it's... But it's very true. Stuart then said to me, well, what are the stats? And I wasn't bang on with what they were. So he emailed me the following day and he said, only 23% of our MPs are women. And that made me really cross. I mean, I had lived in a world, as I've just explained, where I felt equal. I could do anything. And then to hear that actually everything, women were just not properly represented. I had no idea it was so bad. So that's what got me cross. And then my, as I say, my eldest daughter by that point who was going to university said, oh, mum, stop talking about it. Do something. Take a look at the No More Page 3 campaign. For those of you outside the UK or who might just be too young, Page 3 was a British newspaper tradition of publishing large images of topless women on the third page of mainstream tabloids. Yes, mainstream tabloid newspapers. Lucy Ann Holmes, who set up this campaign, she objected to it. She wanted to say so. Uh, you know, whatever anyone else's views are about it, she was brave enough as a person, as a woman, to say, well, I don't like this. Hmm. And my daughter, Zoe, said to me, well, take a look at the No More Page 3 campaign. Look at everyday sexism. 
these women are saying what they think. You say what you think. And then Stuart got back to me and said, by the way, the domain name 5050 Parliament's available. So I thought, great. You know, we, at last we have a name because gender equality of representation in Parliament wouldn't have been a great name for a campaign. Yeah. So that kind of founded it. And then I did what Lucianne Holmes had done. I set up a petition on change.org and started to ask other people if they agreed. Well, of course, the thing that disappointed me most was I thought, well, of course, everyone would agree women should have equal seats and equal say and gender equality of representation. But no, actually, you know, you have to convince people that this is necessary. Still working as an antenatal teacher, the next major turning point for 5050 came when Frances was asked to speak at Canterbury University. After her speech, a teaching assistant by the name of Rosie Duffield called and asked her to meet for coffee. Rosie, who was following 5050 on Twitter at that point, phoned me and said, hey, would you meet for a coffee? And I'm always happy to meet women for a coffee to talk about 5050. So we met. But we were, as we talked, it was clear she knew a lot about politics. And I said, look, Rosie, you should stand. Rosie raised all the normal objections and finally said, they're bound to choose a man. And she said, oh, no, um, this is a conservative constituency and I'm Labour. And anyway, they will always choose a man. And I said, look, you never know till you have a go. And you clearly know a lot about this stuff. Rosie put herself forward and she was selected as the Labour Party candidate for the general election in 2017. The really exciting thing was in 2017, Rosie Darfield did win her seat. It was a safe conservative seat and she made it Labour, overturning, I think it had been Conservative for a hundred years. Wow. Like forever, by a massive margin. Yeah. And um, it was her use of social media and she uh, her connection with the youth. So that was the start of it. And then, I, I don't know, I was just racking my brains about this, thinking, yes, ask her to stand, ask her to stand. So the seeds were sown for what would become the Ask Her to Stand campaign. Then 5050 hosted a cross-party panel in the House of Commons that included Jess Phillips and Justin Greening, both who can be fairly described as superstars or at least rising stars in their respective parties. It was cross-party and also it was gender-balanced panel that we had. We had men and women from both parties all advocating ask her to stand. We decided that this was what we were going to do. We were going to, because the evidence suggests that women need to be asked three times before they will consider standing public office. So we decided that's what we were going to do. We were going to copy Hillary Clinton. She should run. But then, just as Ask Her to Stand was beginning to take off, personal tragedy struck. In 2017, most unexpectedly, my husband died. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was absolutely tragic for me. He was at home in bed, sick with the flu. And unbeknownst to me, he probably had an underlying condition, which meant he couldn't fight it. So it was a dreadful four weeks for me and obviously for him. And I then carried on with my antenatal education because I kind of wanted to just keep going with everything. But mm. I kind of put 50-50 on the back burner. And I said to my team, because I had a small team at that point, and we just launched Ask Her to Stand in 2016, in December 2016. So I said to my team, I've got to just step back now from 50-50. And the thing that was so touching was that they said, don't you worry, we're going to keep running with it. And in particular, there was a wonderful young woman called Dolly Tice, who said she sort of basically sort of ran with the Ask Her to Stand campaign at that point. Dolly had previously worked as a researcher for the Center for Social Justice and ran the election campaign for the Conservative Party MP Charlotte Leslie before standing herself as a candidate for London's Vauxhall constituency in 2017. 
So I kind of left it to them and they went away and redesigned the website uh, to sort of push this ask her to stand thing. And, and what we were doing was we asked women to stand and then we asked them to sign up to stand via our website. Mm. So that's kind of how the Ask Her to Stand program started. Frances and her team began pushing forward once again, just as an important date was looming. And then, of course, 2018 was big in the UK because it was the centenary of when women first got the right to vote. So there were massive celebrations. And we then started to try and look for funding. The campaign was getting bigger and bigger. I was no longer just sort of a ranty old activist. <laughs> it was clear that we needed to do more than that. Yeah. We started to look to for funding and the Joseph Rantry Reform Trust was good enough to back us. So it was in 2018... Uh, we were celebrating the Qualification of Women's Act, uh, which was the 21st of November 2018. And I had managed to persuade Parliament to have a massive event, an Ask Her to Stand event, when we invited 300 women from all over the country. We asked MPs to invite women from their constituencies to come to Westminster that day to celebrate the passing of the Qualification of Women's Act 100 years ago. And we at the whole of the Westminster Hall, this old hall was full of women. And I led the chant saying, you know, equal seats, equal say. And that really felt momentous. Mm. And that particular event, we were encouraging then women to sign up to stand. Here we were asking you to stand, sign up to stand. And the reaction was incredible. Women just started coming to our website and actually signing up to stand. That was the moment Frances knew she had to go all in to make an impact. In late 2018, um, I had the headspace. I decided that I needed really to take on 50-50 and park my antenatal career really and supporting women in that respect in order to support and empower women to public office. Mm. So that's kind of when my conversion took place. It was just amazing to be in parliament that day. It was amazing to see the impact that the campaign could have it was fantastic to have the financial support and to know that there was the potential there. So we've just kind of gone from strength to strength since then. How many women who are currently in Parliament have had some kind of interaction with 50-50 or Ask Her to Stand prior to that? For the 2019 election, we had over 50 of the women who were standing in that election were part of our Sign Up to Stand programme. Then nine of them actually won seats in the Commons and only 12 extra women won seats at that election. And it was the same at the previous election. With only 12 extra women winning seats at each election, it's going to take us 40 to 50 years to actually get for women to have equal seats and equal say. So we've got to do better than that. But men are on our side and we need men on our side. And it's not that we're anti-men, you know, and people also say, well, we want the best. Most definitely we want the best. We want the best institution. And there's plenty of evidence that diversity leads to better decision making. And as I refer, you know, Christine Lagarde, when she was talking about the financial crash, she was suggesting that if we'd had a better diversity, less groupthink, it, it would have led to less risk averse decision making and the financial crash might have been avoided. Yeah. And I think women bring different things to decision making, different styles and this is another reason why we need equal representation, particularly when it comes to planning the future of the planet, climate change. I mean, the COVID crisis, women's approach to tackling 
and handling the COVID crisis, women's leadership has been oh yeah, different. Uh, markedly different. I mean, I think I'd like to offer a subtle reframe as well, at least in my own view. I don't think a, a woman can ever win a seat at the expense of a man, but I do think voters need to have a choice, right? I mean, there's never we've never had a, a situation in the UK nor in the US where there have been an equal number of women running. Right. So I think sometimes when you've been in whatever group, whether that's me because I'm white and middle class. Right. So whatever privilege you've had, sometimes a rebalancing feels like somebody's taking something away. You're doing it at my expense. But actually, it's just it's just making things more equal. And when people sort of say it should be the best person, it should be the best person. But a lot of the best people are not running now because they don't think to run, because maybe it's not desirable, maybe it's not set up to work around the realities of what it's like to be a woman in a family. So I just feel like there's so many wrong underlying assumptions to that belief that like you're, you know, you're taking it from a man or it has to be equal that those are the assumptions that we have to challenge. Look, women are the majority. Yeah. Why are the majority not properly represented? And this is the most, to my mind, because we live in a world that has been designed by men and it's not their fault. It's just the way it is. Yeah. So our democracy has been around for 2000 years, but really just built along lines that are convenient uh, for men's lives. Mm. And this has got to change because we want our parliament to draw upon the widest possible pool of talent possible, including the 32 million people that happen to be women. Yeah. And their life experience counts as much as men's. They bring different things to the table. They, be, they bring different thought processes. They bring different experience. And the role that women play in society is really important and just as important. They might not be as economically active, but they are actually, the work that women do is just as important. Absolutely. And so all this stuff, and by the way, why shouldn't they be as economically active? And why isn't it that men don't take on some of the roles that are not are not paid, mm. you know, and where you have gender balance in parliament, like in Norway, I mean, we're coming on to the parenting issue here, but, you know, men need to participate in private life so that women can participate in public life That's right. and not become economically dependent or mm. economically vulnerable. And so in Norway, where you have gender balance parliament, uh, parenting pay is what people get. Mm. And if they don't take it, they don't get it. I mean, so it's paternity pay and the men take it. Mm. And it has been of enormous benefit to their families and their relationships. And it means that, you know, women can remain economically active, but the family and the children still have the opportunity to be looked after, cared for by their parents, yeah. at least in the early years, I mean, or the early year. But these are big issues. And I'm not really trying to say what should be done. I'm just saying that women should be equally involved in the decision making. Yeah. It's about time, 2021, that we really start addressing this particular issue. It's a democratic deficit. Mm. The mother of parliaments needs modernizing. Absolutely. So what exactly does 5050 Parliament do to support women once they've signed up and shown interest in running for office? When a woman clicks sign up to stand with us, we now have a campaign coordinator and all sorts of support staff in place. We send her her own personal political profile, which kind of lists, it's party specific, it lists the kind of steps and things she might need to consider. And it allows us to sort of monitor her progress. Uh, we allocate her a 50-50 buddy. So you get peer-to-peer -peer support, a political friend. 
We invite her to weekly party-specific bite-sized meetings, which are led by women who have experience, who have stood, who can then give them more expert advice about how to progress within their given party. And we offer bespoke support to women from diverse groups. And, you know, we're kind of doing the same thing to support women from other sort of minority groups, uh, disabled women, LGBT women, and this kind of thing. So that's the program that we offer now. And it's fantastic. For anybody who's sitting and thinking, hmm, should I, should I think about standing? What makes a good candidate? Someone who cares. The key thing about succeeding in politics is caring about society and the future. That's the most important thing. Everything else can be taught mm. or learned. So public speaking, social media, how to read legislation and comment on it, this kind of stuff. And that's what we're here for. So we would urge women who care, who watch telly and feel frustrated about the state of the world or things that they feel need to change. You cannot change stuff unless you're in power. Oh my God, let's just repeat that. <laughs> you cannot change stuff unless you're in power. So if you care about stuff, you have to be at the table. So this begs the question, are you going to run? I considered that before I started 50-50. Seriously. And I decided, no, we need to change this institution, which sounds kind of arrogant, doesn't it? But as I said, you know, in fact... It doesn't sound arrogant at all. And a man would never say that. It sounds passionate and driven and committed, in my view. But I was kind of used to that, you know. I mean, as yeah. I say, you know, my first job, I've always said, oh, I can do this. I can do this. We need to do this. So I just thought we've got to change this and we've got to be more loud about it. My husband was pretty cross. He said, why are you doing this? And I said, because if I don't do it, I will burst. He said, there must be other organizations. But at that particular point call uh, in 2013, people were calling for 30% women in cabinet. Mm. And that kind of annoyed me. It was felt like it wasn't aspirational enough. Mm -hmm. And how can we call for 30% women in cabinet? We need 50% women on the back benches, front benches, throughout the institution. So I want to talk with you about your experience working cross-party. And the reason I, I specifically want to talk to you about this experience is because I feel like we are still at this very divided time in politics and maybe, maybe getting a little bit better, maybe not. I think we'll have to wait and see how we come out of this COVID time. How have you avoided getting drawn into some of this divisiveness? And how have you seen them work together on this single problem? All parties agree on this, actually. We want to build a better democracy. And it's not been a problem at all. The support that we've had from cross-party has been fantastic. Of course, I do have opinions about policy, <laughs> but I keep them to myself. One of my things about being an antenatal teacher, I'm not there to tell women how to give birth. Mm. Women just have to make their own choices. It's about empowering women. I'm here to support women, whatever their political persuasion, uh, whatever their... We are here, not me. 50-50 mm -hmm. are here to support women across the political spectrum. It's a bit like when you set off on a journey, which is why the campaign name is so important. Mm. When you start on a journey, you need to know where you're heading. And we're heading for a gender-balanced 50-50 parliament. Men and women have equal seats and equal say. 
There are many different routes to get there, but you just need to have a clear idea of what the objective is. Why do you think women need to be asked three times and how many times do men need to be asked? The evidence is that men don't need to be asked at all. (laughs) They just look in the mirror and think I'm the next president or, you know, next prime minister. So, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I guess there are so many profound uh, answers to that question. Um, and I don't really care yeah. why. I just think if it's the case, let's solve it and ask them again and again and again and make them realize that actually we were running a campaign called Women Your Country Needs You, you know, a bit like the Kitchener campaign. Mm. We really need women. And what's your vision? Is your vision for 50-50 to be made obsolete in oh, 10 absolutely. years? absolutely. No, yeah. I mean... I, yeah, 10 years would be great. A decade of democracy, mm. that would be amazing. But that's asking some. It's meaning that we need 60 extra women elected in the next election. The last time that happened was in 1997, when, by the way, the number of women doubled from 60 to 120. And that was with the Labour Party and Tony Blair and all women shortlists, which led to massive kickback. But it, that hasn't happened since. So I do think if we really raise awareness of this issue and sort of put pressure on everybody involved, and basically the key people who really need to understand this are the gatekeepers. They are the local party associations who select their candidates. We should be drawing upon the widest possible pool of talent. Women are 50, over 50% of graduates, 60% of law graduates. They make a massive contribution to the economy with their paid and unpaid work. They need to be opening the doors and offering the seats. This is traditional respect. Mm. And it's time that we were able to have an equal say in the future. What are one or two things you would think, you would anticipate, maybe you don't know for sure, but you think would be concretely different if we had more women from all parties in politics? If we had 50-50 what are one or two concrete things you think this this would probably be different? Well, I think understanding of parenting w- mm. would probably be different and mm. enabling men to participate in parenting mm. in order that women can participate mm. in, you know, really drawing upon the Scandinavian mm. thing. But as I say, I'm not really pushing for that. But no, I think, no, no, I know. I, I, think, I think more women around the table, there would be, that would be one change that might happen. And I think it would have profound consequences, mm. enabling men to get more involved with their kids. And I think that one of the things about COVID has actually meant that people are all at home now. It's been very demanding. It's been very, <laughs> very challenging yeah. for people raising small children. But at least there's been, the personal is political. So people are all having to decide personally in their own homes about who is going to take responsibility for the children today Mm. and recognizing that this is something that has to be done. Um, And where does that responsibility fall and who is it that chooses to take it up and and why and what are the financial consequences of that? Okay, I want to switch gears here and on our Tilly round, which I think you've been briefed upon. What is one lesson you've learned the hard way? I think the most difficult lesson I've had to learn is how much I love my husband once he died and how I wish I'd appreciated him more and told him so when he was alive. Um, I miss him very much. What don't women talk enough about? The joys and importance of parenting Mm. and actually what a pleasure it is, but you know, and, and the juggling that's required. But actually for me, I have four children and I, I had a very interesting, wonderful life before I had kids, but Having kids has been so fulfilling uh, and wonderful and raising them and watching them grow into the wonderful adults they've become 
it's just been mind blowing. Mm. And it was such a thing. It was such a fun doing it with my husband. The teamwork involved in raising kids, I think, is is just great. What's an opinion you once held strongly that you've since changed your mind about? I used to think vegetarianism was just a quirky fashion and an absurdity, uh, but I'm now a vegetarian mainly. Um, my kids are all vegetarian, and I, given you know the climate crisis and all this. So for those kind of reasons, I've converted completely and I really enjoy being a vegetarian. I mean, I've, I've learned how to cook the most delicious food. Amazing. What are you still insecure about? My appearance. Mm -hmm. And I find, you know, as I get older, of course, it's worse. And the thing about becoming an older woman is, you know, you feel invisible perhaps or taken advantage of as a young woman, but as an old woman, you become invisible and again, this really frustrates me in politics. You know, the average age in the House of Commons is 50 plus. There are many older men there sort of all deciding how we should run our lives. And yet older women's experience isn't valued or considered important. I know it doesn't help, but I think you look great. <laughs> when do you feel you're most powerful? The thing I really love is 50-50 presentations. Mm. Um, I don't really feel powerful, but that's when I think we're jointly powerful. When we're, you know, women in the room all deciding about the change that we want to make and working together. And as you rightly said, you know, working with all parties, all these women together. It's such a powerful sensation. I love it. Last question. What are you really fucking good at? I don't know. I would like to think that I'm quite good at inspiring women. Mm. I mean, I found as an antenatal teacher, women felt empowered when they left and enjoyed the classes and the discussions that we had. I mean, birth is difficult and it didn't always go the way that they'd planned or wanted. But on the whole, they could all come to terms with the experience that they had, which was really important to me. And I just love empowering women to stand for office. Mm. Um, recently in the local elections that we had, we asked the women that were standing, you know, how they'd been inspired by 50-50. I mean, I needed some quotes. I just put on the WhatsApp groups and suddenly I was in, inundated from women saying how inspired they'd been by 50-50. And that was like, you know, my best morning ever really to hear that, that this was making a difference. Francis, this has been so much fun. Where should women go if they want to stand? And just as importantly, where should men go if they want to help? We are calling upon women to sign up to stand via 5050. Go to the website and you'll see the hashtag sign up to stand and click on that and give us your email address and fill in a little form. And of course, it's all completely confidential. And then we will uh, contact you probably the next day to offer support. Anyone that wants to help can just click join the campaign and it's completely free of charge to be part of this movement. I don't know whether the suffragettes charged you to become a suffragette, <laughs> but we don't charge anyone to join the movement. Men and women are welcome. We have some fantastic men supporting the cause and even on the team. They've been amazing. And if you want to help us financially, you can become a friend of 5050. Again, look on the website for friends of 5050. Thanks to everyone for listening. If meeting these women is valuable to you, I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe and review wherever you're listening right now. It really does help us reach more incredible women to introduce you to. My hope is to elevate you and a lot of women just like you into power and to help us use that power to elevate others. Until next time, stay curious, stay brave, and keep making good trouble.
This episode of the Power Done Differently podcast was brought to you in partnership with 5050 Parliament, the campaign to promote equal seats and equal say for women in Parliament. The views and opinions expressed within do not necessarily reflect the views and positions or official policy of 5050 Parliament and do not constitute an endorsement, guarantee, warranty, or recommendation. The Power Done Differently podcast assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy contained in third-party materials or on third-party sites referenced in this podcast.